Right, thank you, Nessia, for uh, that recitation. God uh, does bless as we uh, memorize his word. And uh, the story of Ruth is uh, one, one of the love stories of the Old Testament. It speaks of uh, the love of uh, first uh, Ruth to Naomi and then uh, Boaz to Ruth. And uh, the beautiful um, example or a picture really of, of uh, Christ. Uh, the King of Kings, uh, taking to himself a Gentile bride, which is the church. Um, so, so we enjoy that. Uh, turning to the Book of Romans, we're, we're continuing in our study. We've come to uh, a new section, uh, if you would. Uh, we've uh, talked about uh, salvation. That is the main message of the letter to the Romans, and now uh, Paul is going to uh, take a step back and answer a question that uh, many people in his days were asking. I think fewer people today are asking this question, so it might seem a little bit less relevant to us than uh, the people to whom Paul was writing it, but I think it's still a relevant question, and that is, what happened to Israel? What happened to Israel? They were God's chosen people uh, in the Old Testament, and we'll, we'll see that uh, in this passage very clearly, and yet uh, they are now outside of God's blessing because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And the question is, what happened uh, to them? And uh, one of the questions that some people might, might ask is, did God somehow fail? God somehow failed. There were his people. He had uh, all these promises to them, and yet they've now, if you would, fallen by the wayside. So what happened to Israel? So first, uh, I had a question. Does your word ever fail? Does something you say uh, ever fail from coming to pass? Uh, <laughs> the answer, if we're honest, is Yes. Right? I often say something that doesn't come to pass. Why? Well, sometimes uh, you know, I'm just not able to do it. Right? I might promise my kids uh, I will you know, get you such and such a present for Christmas, but then the day comes and the shelves are empty, and I just can't get it for them, even though I had every intention of keeping my word. I'm just not able to fulfill it. Sometimes I might change my mind. Maybe I read the reviews about the gift I was going to give them, and I found this really is not a good gift, and it's going to break after a day, so let's spend our money on something that's really a better investment. Right? So my word failed because I changed my mind. Sometime, hopefully not often, I might just be not telling the truth when I promise. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get it you know, for Christmas without intending ever to, to fulfill my word. Again, hopefully, we don't do it very often. But because of, of all these things, our word fail, our promise sometimes does fail. What about God? Well, this is what the scripture says about God. 
Uh, Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not uh, make it good? First of all, God never lies, right? He never deliberately deceives anyone because that goes against his character. He is perfect. He is holy. He will never lie. Uh, second, uh, he doesn't change his mind, right? He knows, he knows everything, right? And so there's never like a new piece of information just came along that will make me change what I was going to do. No, God never changes. He does not repent. Um, and finally, God has all power, right? Uh, I may not be able to, to buy something for my kids. I might have run out of funds, or maybe the item is just no longer available. God is the one who spoke the universe into existence, right? There is no limit uh, to his power. So God doesn't lie. So let's go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll see how Paul uh, addresses this, this question. And, and the truth is, this is the first of a six-part series as Paul is dealing with the question of what happened uh, to Israel. But we're just, uh, thankfully, only are going to deal with the first portion today, so Romans 9, 1 through 14. I tell the truth in Christ. Romans 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah has uh, also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay, so plenty in this passage for us. First, Paul is expressing here 
are really an amazing grief over Israel. Um, and I think it's reasonable uh, uh, for all of us to, to be sad about the loss, right? We know people uh, who are heading to an eternity of torment in hell. And that's, that should grieve our hearts. How much more when it is our own families that we know are, are separated from God and going to an eternity uh, without him. Uh, it breaks our heart, and, and it should. Uh, break our heart. And Paul uh, was no different from us. Uh, here he is expressing, if you would, uh, a, broader, uh, a broader sorrow than just his family. He seems to be thinking here of all uh, the Jews, all the whole nation of Israel. And again, his sorrow is because they're separated from God, and that's what's breaking uh, his heart. Uh, the way he's stating it here is extremely strong. Uh, it's almost like he's, he expects people don't believe that that's how he feels, right? He says, I tell the truth in Christ. One, I am not lying. Two, my conscience is also bearing me witness. Three, in the Holy Spirit. Four, he's like, he's just laying it on of really how grieved he is, uh, probably partly because it's being questioned. Because he... Uh, his teaching um, has been accused to have been against the nation of Israel. He is the apostle of the Gentile. He's the one who's going out to all the world and telling them, Jesus died uh, for your sins, and if you believe in him, uh, you will go to heaven, right? And the Jews were like, wait a second, wait a second. What about keeping the law, right? What about needing to be from a Jewish descent? Right? What about all these things that God commanded us in the Old Testament? Right? You're throwing them all away, going with this message of salvation to the Gentiles and um, saying the Gentiles can be saved as easily as the Jews. And, and many in the nation of Israel were offended by Paul's teaching. And so uh, probably some of them felt, well, you must be against the law. You must be against the nation of Israel. Right? And so he is, he is, he is, he's stressing here the reality of his grief uh, for his people. Now, we see it also in his, um, his ministry. Paul is just not saying it. Every time he would go to a new city, he would start by going into the synagogue right, and pleading with them. I mean, Paul cared about the Jewish people. And so he is not dismissing what happened to Israel. What happened to Israel is a great burden on the heart of Paul, to the point where he says the unimaginable. He says, uh, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He's saying, if I could trade place with the nation of Israel, if by me <coughs> being separated from Christ for all of eternity, somehow Israel would receive God and enjoy all his blessings in Christ. I'd be willing to make that trade. The only person I know who was willing to do that was Jesus himself, right? And yet Paul is saying, this is, this is what I would be willing to do for them. So he's, he's, he's saying, you know, this is, this is hurting me, what happened to the nation of Israel, right? More, more than you can imagine. Um, then he describes the, 
privileges that the nation of Israel are. He goes through them in verse 4 uh, and 5. He says, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption. Right? They were, in a sense, adopted out of the world to be God's chosen people. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Merci. Get me that water bottle. It was so good, and I grabbed it. I had it sitting there, and I just didn't bring it here. Okay. So they were made God's special nation, his special treasure, right, of all the earth. Um, they, they had the glory, right, of being associated with God. Uh, they had the covenants. God made agreements with them, right, if they were going to keep his law. Right, they would be blessed above every other nation right, on the face of the earth. They had uh, covenants with God. Um, the giving of the law, God gave them his law. They, they had the, the Old Testament. They had the knowledge of God and what it is that God wanted them to do. Alone of all the world, they were the one nation that had God's revelation in their hands. Um, they had the service of God, the opportunity of serving him. The, the tabernacle was there, um, the altar, uh, the holy of holies, right? All of that was in the care of Israel. They were the ones who were able to serve God on the face of the earth. They alone, of all the nations uh, of the earth. Um, and the promises, they had the promises of God, including the promise of the Messiah, that God was going to send the Messiah uh, to them. Now, God had a bigger plan than just the nation of Israel, as we will see very clearly as we go through these three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, <clears throat> but they specifically had God's promises to them. Um, then, uh, of whom are the fathers? And we just listened to Nesia reciting um, about Boaz and Ruth, right? It was of them uh, that uh, the Messiah came. Uh, they had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, typically referred to as the fathers. But all of these characters we'll, we look at in the Old Testament as we're studying uh, the Bible, they were all Jews, right? That was all the nation of Israel. Um, why, why is Paul saying all of this about them? Uh, because, yes, he understands why people would expect that the nation of Israel would be uh, accepted in Christ, right, and enjoying all of God's blessings, right? It is, it is a very surprising, uh, really, uh, you know, terrible thing that happened that God's chosen people uh, is, is the nation of Israel are now being excluded from God's blessings, right? Uh, and so Paul is, is going to address that, and as I said, it's, it's really going to be a six-part series because we can't cover it all in one portion. Paul didn't. He dedicated three long chapters in, uh, in Romans to address this issue. And today, we're just going to look really at one of those, one, uh, one way in which we can tell God's word hasn't failed. God's word hasn't failed. That's really what Paul wants to stress today and really for this whole series is uh, God hasn't failed, right? And, and today and uh, next week, 
we're going to be looking at the fact that God has chosen, right, who to save. And the following two weeks, we will stress the fact that Israel rejected. God has made an offer. The gospel came to Israel. They had full opportunity, right, to enjoy God's blessings, right? It's not like God wouldn't offer them his blessing. They rejected <coughs> the blessing of God in the gospel. And then finally, we'll see in chapter 9 that, uh, first of all, Israel's rejection is not, is not total, right? It's not that all of the nation of Israel is excluded. God has saved the remnant. If you look in history, God has always saved the remnant of Israel, while the majority typically did not follow God, right? And that's throughout the Old Testament. That's not new today, right? But God always saved the remnant. He has a remnant today. He still has some members of the nation of Israel enjoying his blessings, right, that are following him today. And then uh, their failure is not final. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. God will still <coughs> bring them into the center of his blessing, okay? Today we're just focusing on God's fulfillment of his word. In verse 6 it says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. God's word hasn't failed, right? As I said in the beginning, <clears throat> my word to you could fail. God's word can never fail, right? He, he never lies. He knows everything, and he is able to do everything, right? So his word never fails. <clears throat> but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So here's the key thought for today, or at least the, the key explanation, and that is we often confuse the physical descendants of, of God's people with God's true people, right? So just because a Jew is a descendant of God's chosen people doesn't actually make them God's chosen people today. It's not something you can inherit by flesh. Uh, I, I seem to remember something that Nat uh, told me uh, once when he shared with me his testimony, and that is that there's no second-generation Christians, right? Each of us has to receive the gospel for ourselves, right? We don't automatically become Christians because our parents are Christians. And the same thing holds for the Jewish people. Just because a person was a physical descendant of Abraham, didn't make him part of God's chosen people, or, if you would, an inheritor of God's blessings, right? And there's two examples that Paul uses in this example. The first one is that of Isaac, right? He says, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Why did, um, did he say that it's, that is because Abraham actually had another son before 
he had Isaac. He had Ishmael, right? <clears throat> so if we would assume that by being born, being a physical descendant of Abraham, you inherit all of Abraham's blessings, well, Ishmael was there first, right? He should have had it, but the scripture says in Isaac, your seed will be called, right? And then he says in verse 9, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So let's go ahead and turn there. We'll just go ahead and see it right there in the Old Testament. This happens in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 15. Now, something I, I want to note as we go through these examples, uh, the second one will be Jacob. First one is Isaac, second one is Jacob. Uh, in both we will see what I just said. You don't become one of God's people because your parents are. You don't become one of God's people because of your parents are. Number two, God is the one who chooses who will be his people. Okay? Number three, God's choice typically defies human expectation. He doesn't choose the way you or I would choose. Number four, his word holds true. The person whom God chooses does manifest the truth of it. It becomes clear that that person really is uh, the child of God, meaning God is able to, to do his word, right? When he, when he chooses a person, that person truly does become uh, a child of God. <clears throat> okay, so first, uh, with Isaac, this is Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, as for, your, for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. So here's God comes and he's been making this promise to Abraham since chapter 12 of Genesis. And he's actually repeated the promise several times. And uh, you may recall that at some point Sarah had the bright idea it's like, well, okay, God promised you a son. She's talking to uh, Abraham, right? That's going to be, you know, this source of blessing to all the world. I am barren, I am old, but I have this handmaiden over here, Hagar, and, uh, and she's, she's young, of childbearing age, you know, take care. And the child that she, that's born of her, we will, you know, kind of pretend it's for me. <laughs> Right? You know, she'll bear him on my lap and it'll be like, you're in my child. Right? Now, we've all found out how well that worked. Right? That was a terrible idea. The world is still suffering the repercussions of, of that idea. But uh, Abraham is picking up the line here. In verse 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old. Abraham was a hundred years old at the time. Remember what I said, God's choice, you know, defies human expectation. He doesn't pick the person we would expect him to pick. Um, 
So, so shall a child be born to one who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham is saying, look, you know, you're kind of talking about something that's impossible. You're telling me Sarah is going to have a son and he's going to inherit uh, the blessing, but, you know, we've worked really hard and we've produced Ishmael, so why don't you just use Ishmael, right? He can be the child of blessing. And um, God doesn't accept that. He said, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, and I, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So, so yeah, we see here all these points, right? Uh, you don't become one of God's people just because your parents are. And all of this applies to the nation of Israel, right? That, you know, it, it, it seems so devastating, so impossible that the nation of Israel is now finding itself outside of God's blessings. But it's, you don't become one of God's people because your parents are, right? They can't say, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham, so you must bless me. It doesn't work like that, right? <clears throat> uh, God chooses the person, right? And, and we will talk about God's choice next week. Right? That will focus more on God's choosing. Who did God choose now? Um, but in this particular case, God chose Isaac. Right? It defies human expectation. Why will God choose you know, a child out of such an old couple? Impossible. Impossible. And yet, God brings it to pass. Right? Isaac was born. And Isaac did become the son of blessing. And we were talking about it today, how Abraham you know, offered Isaac. Isaac became a picture of Christ there. And we know history goes on. Isaac has Jacob. And through that, the nation of Israel. And through that, Christ came, right? So God's promise came through Isaac in spite of what seemed like an impossible uh, situation. Okay, the second example is that of Jacob. <clears throat> in verse 10, uh, Paul picks up, and not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, okay, so now we can't say, well, you know, the problem with Ishmael was that he had the wrong mother, right? And that's why he's not the son of blessing. Well, in this case, you can't say that. It's the same father and same mother, Right? Rebecca, one woman, had also conceived by one man, Isaac. Okay, the same two parents, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, 
but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So again, we could go to the passage. So this one we will find in um, Genesis 25. Uh, verse 21, Genesis 25, verse 21, says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, <coughs> conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So here we have Rebekah and uh, Isaac, and out of them came two children, Jacob and Esau. And again we see, just because you are a physical descendant of God's people does not make you one of God's people. Why? Because Esau, Esau was not one of God's people, even though he had the same father and mother as Jacob did. Second, we see that the Lord chose, right? We don't know why the Lord chose Jacob over Esau, but he did, right? So it was God's choice who was going to be one of his people. Uh, second, again, it's, oh, sorry, third, contrary to human expectation, right? Typically, you pick the older, right? It's the firstborn that typically will get the rights and the privileges. Uh, something that Isaac actually tried to do. He tried to bless Esau. And yet, against expectation, God picks the younger of the two. And, uh, and then finally, we see uh, it comes to pass. Whatever God says comes to pass. And, uh, and he quotes, and I know this is a difficult verse. It says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We don't like to associate um, God with hating a person. Uh, so we need to be a little bit careful here because the word hate can be used to simply mean, you know, preferring something over another. For example, it says in the scripture that Leah was hated. Leah was Jacob's wife. Jacob didn't hate Leah. He had six children with her, right? But he preferred Rachel over Leah. And so it says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated, right? Jesus tells us that we should, you know, unless we hate our father and mother, we cannot be his disciple. He doesn't want us to hate our parents. He wants us to honor our father and our mother. He wants us to love our parents. But compared to him, he must have first place over even our father and mother. And so relative to that, he says we're hating our father and mother. And so all it says here, all it means when it says that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, God has shown preference to Jacob. We can't argue with the fact God has shown 
reference to Jacob. And that's taken out of Malachi um, chapter 1, the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, verse 2 uh, says, I have loved you, says the Lord. The Lord is saying to Israel, nation of Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Right? Israel saying that to God. How have you loved us? His answer is, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he was. Says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. So uh, Israel, uh, really of all the nations of that time, um, has survived. Right? Today we can look at Israel, and now you know, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We know God still has a future plan for the nation of Israel. He's not done with them. He's still saving, saving a remnant uh, from his people. But we look around for Esau's descendant, the country of Edom. Anybody knows what that is on the globe? No, <laughs> they're not there anymore. God has brought that nation to a complete end. And so Jacob, I have loved, right? He's still working. He's still saving. He still has a plan. He's done with Edom. Right? Edom has been judged. They've been wiped out. Right? Now, they've been judged for their sins. Right? It's not that God says, well, I like this person. I'm going to keep him around. I don't like this one. I'm going to kill him. Edom has been judged for their sins. Right? Now, technically, Israel also deserves to be judged for their sins. Right? And that's where we see God's love providing salvation with judgment to be. Okay? So, um, so that's the two examples that we have. Now, he adds a statement here that's probably worth uh, taking note of. In, um, and, this, and this more or less will end what we have to say about this passage. Uh, he makes this statement in verse 11, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. That the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Uh, God wanted us to know that his purpose will stand through election. Uh, what is God's purpose? God's purpose is to save you and me. Right? He desires uh, to see uh, us as the bride of his son in heaven. And that purpose is going to stand according to election. Why are we all going to be there in heaven enjoying the blessings of God? Because God has chosen us. Right? It is, it is you know, uh, the power on which we will stand. It's not of works. Right? It's not because of anything I have done to deserve salvation, but it is God's uh, purpose, God's choice. Right? And so 
we can take comfort from that fact that God's, uh, that our salvation is resting on God's election. Now, I'll be honest. Of all the doctrines in the scriptures, election is one of the ones I struggle with the most. And it's not just me, right? And the fact I know it's not just me is God is going to spend the next passage, or Paul will, inspired by the Holy Spirit, justifying that statement, right? The point, justifying the doctrine of election. That's most of the rest of chapter 9. Why? Because it's so unpopular, right? If we all loved the doctrine of election, there wouldn't be any need for, for Paul to justify it in the coming section, right? So why don't we like? Why might we not like the doctrine of election? And there's at least two reasons that I can think of. Uh, one, it, uh, it emphasizes our weakness, right, and inability uh, to save ourselves. The fact that, that God has to choose me means I can't do anything, right, uh, to save myself. And I don't like that, right? And uh, so that's one reason uh, we, don't, we don't like the doctrine of election. The other is uh, it appears to contradict the fact that God loves everyone he wants everyone to be saved. He invites everyone to be saved. And anyone who believes the gospel will be saved. Right? I mean, that is, that is a true, just as true of a doctrine as that of election. Right? But they too don't fit in my mind at the same time. Um, and we don't like that. Right? I want to understand everything. Right? I want everything to make perfect sense to me. But there are certain things that my mind uh, can't wrap itself around. It's, this, is, this is by far not the only doctrine in the Bible we cannot understand uh, combined with other doctrines in the, in the Bible. For example, Jesus was a man. He's a man. Jesus is God. Right? He is fully man. Right? He went hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired, he died. Right? All things that really only a man can do. But he is fully God. He created the world. Right? He healed the sick. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He raised himself from the dead. He died to pay the sins of all of mankind. He rose, right, from the dead to give salvation to all, right? Something only God could do, right? And yet both doctrines are true. Another one is there's only one God. There's only one. But God the Father, the Father is God, and God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, right? I mean, we can't understand these things, and yet they're clearly taught in the Scripture the same way the doctrine of election is taught. God chooses who will be saved. The doctrine of, um, I'm not sure what to call it, uh, freedom of choice, <laughs> right, is taught, 
right? We all have an opportunity to trust in Christ and go to heaven. God is keeping nobody out. The door is wide open. And uh, we, will see, we sang this hymn at the, uh, at the beginning of our sermon, before our sermon. Uh, Thy word is like a garden, Lord, with flowers bright and fair, and everyone who seeks may pluck a lovely cluster there. Thy word is like a deep, deep mine, and jewels rich and rare are hidden in its mighty depth for every searcher there. So the Bible is full of wonderful doctrines, teachings that, that are beneficial for us. And uh, I may go in and I'll dive and I'll come up with one beautiful jewel. And you might go in and dive and come with one beautiful jewel. And sometimes it might seem impossible that two different jewels came from the same mine. Right? And yet they both came from that same mine. And that's the, the truth about the doctrine of election. Let me read you a couple of, of verses about that. Uh, and we just, Don read it for us a couple of weeks ago. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. How do I know that I'm going to be in heaven glorified? Because you know, I've trusted in Christ. He justified me because he called me, because he predestined me. It goes all the way to the past, right? And so I can, I can have confidence in the future because of God's election. I know I'm not here by accident. It's all been God's work in my life. And he who started a good thing in me will also finish it, right? Um, Peter even says this, 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And there Peter is talking about us working practical righteousness in our lives. Because that's, it's, it's a sign, it's an evidence of our calling and election. I can see a person and see evidence that they're God's elect because they've trusted in Christ. And I see the impact of Christ's work in their lives. And that's why we love it. When somebody will share their testimony during a baptism, like, wow, we can see God's work in that person's life, right? He, you know, they've trusted in, in Christ, and we see a change from before to after in their life. And we're trusting that, again, he who had began a good work in them will also finish it in the day of Jesus Christ. But right alongside, we have verses like, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So I, I rejoice in the fact God wants everybody to be saved, right? And that the gospel doors are wide open. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that 
whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for everyone, right? He wants everyone to be saved. The Bible almost closes with this verse, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So don't let the doctrine of election stop you from coming to God. That's not its intention. The intention of that doctrine is to secure us that God is in full control, right? And that we can be secure in our salvation because it's not by works, right? It's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So we can rejoice in both the doctrine of election and the doctrine of of free choice. We don't have to pick between them. We can enjoy both of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize uh, there are some things that are hard for us to understand, but uh, we would be foolish and proud if we reject any of your wonderful teachings because we cannot understand them. So we thank you that, um, that you do uh, choose uh, people for salvation. You desire, you desire us to enjoy uh, the fullness of your salvation. And uh, we pray for anyone here who hasn't yet trusted in you, that they will hear your call, they will hear your desire for them, and come and receive your salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.